the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I can hardly believe it's already November 7th. It was just summer like a minute ago. And spring, the bulbs were coming up. That was just about a half an hour ago, and already we're at November 7th. Thanksgiving is coming. The singing Christmas tree is going to start, and I'm already behind. Anyway, welcome. (laughs) All of that to say, we're glad to have you with us on this afternoon. Uh, James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. We're glad to have you with us. Um, We had plans for today, and, um, you know, sometimes plans don't happen the way you intend. And the guest that I had been announcing all week was going to join us today was unable to do so, a family issue. But I was able to uh, snab... um, Frank Gaffney, he is uh, he's a number of things. He's the CEO and president of Save the Persecuted uh, Christians. He's the founder and executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy. That's how I have known him over the years. But he's also vice chairman for the Committee on the Present Danger, uh, and they focus on China. We're going to talk about the work of Save the Persecuted Christians. We'll talk about the House resolution on Armenian genocide and what that means. There's a People of the Cross and Warfare on Women Traveling Exhibit. We'll talk about uh, their news aggregator, ChristianPersecutionNews.com, if you want to keep up on what's happening and where. Uh, We'll talk about all of that with Frank Gaffney in the second hour of today's program. So I'm looking forward to that. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Whistleblowers, uh, an attorney representing the whistleblower at the center of the House Democrats' formal impeachment inquiry is under fire for a January 2017 tweet in which he wrote, a coup has started in the first of many steps and promised that impeachment will follow ultimately. Well, then on um, in July, rather, of 2017, Mark Zaid remarked on Twitter, I predict at CNN will play a key role in at Donald, uh, real Donald Trump, not finishing out his full term as president. Also that month, Zaid tweeted, uh, we will rid of, uh, yeah, we will get rid of him and this country is strong enough to survive even him and his supporters. Well, Zaid's tweets fuel Republican concerns that the anonymous whistleblower's complaint is tainted with partisanship and part of a longtime conspiracy to remove Trump from office that began before his inauguration. Trump was repeatedly, uh, has repeatedly accused Democrats and partisans in the intelligence community of effectively plotting a coup against him, though selective leaks and lengthy investigations through them. The president at a campaign rally in Louisiana Yesterday, last night, to be more precise, quoted extensively from um, an earlier article about Zaid's tweets and suggested it proves that Democrats' impeachment push is all a hoax and a scam. Well, there are real hearings taking place and real testimony. We'll continue to follow that as they will resume the public uh, portion of it on the 13th next week. Democrats must be accountable for their hoaxes and their crimes, the president said at the Louisiana rally, holding a uh, printout of the piece. Well, the House Intelligence Committee will hold its first open hearing next week as part of the formal impeachment inquiry into the president, featuring current and former officials with knowledge of the Ukraine controversy. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff made the announcement 
announcement on Twitter. The first public hearing scheduled for next Wednesday will feature William Taylor. He's the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. He's already testified behind closed doors that the president in his July 25th phone call pushed Ukraine to investigate election interference. Former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden and their Ukrainian dealings and that he was told U.S. military aid and a White House meeting were used as leverage to get a public announcement from Kiev that the probes were underway. That phone call was uh, the basis of the whistleblower complaint that started House Democrats impeachment push, or at least the latest iteration of the impeachment push. Schiff's announcement came as Senator Rand Paul on Wednesday blocked a resolution to affirm a rather reaffirm whistleblower protections, accusing Democrats of selective outrage. Paul suggested that Democrats drop their resolution and instead pass legislation that he introduced earlier that day that would make clear that President Trump should be able to face the whistleblower. Democrats did not oblige, so he objected to their bill. The Los Angeles Times faced fierce backlash for its coverage of the nine Americans murdered by a Mexican drug cartel this week after a report highlighted the family's long history of violence. At least six children and three women living in uh, the faith community of U.S. citizens in Mexico were shot to death Monday in the uh, northern part of the country, and six more children were wounded after their convoy came under fire during a brazen daylight ambush believed to have been carried out by gunmen affiliated with cartels. All the victims are believed to be members of the extended LeBaron family who have lived in a religious community in La Mora, northern Mexico, a decades-old settlement in Sonora State, founded as part of an offshoot of a religious community around 70 miles south of Douglas, Arizona. However, the California newspaper ran a report on Monday headlined U.S. victims in Mexico massacre were tied to family with a long history of violence, which detailed the community's tragic past with the cartels. That sparked a firestorm of criticism on social media, suggesting these three women, mothers and their children, were responsible for their own deaths. The Justice Department has charged two former Twitter employees with spying for the Saudi government, marking the first time federal prosecutors have publicly accused Saudis of spying in the United States. The charges unveiled on Wednesday in San Francisco detailed an effort by Saudi officials to recruit employees at the social media company to look up the private data of thousands of Twitter accounts whose users were critics of the Saudi government. And First Lady Melania Trump visited a Boston hospital on Wednesday to meet with caregivers and administrators of the pioneering program that uses cuddling to help infants who are born dependent on drugs and alcohol. Outside Boston Medical Center in the city's south end, as many as 200 workers protested the visit, saying the First Lady represented an administration who they say has discouraged immigrants from seeking health care with tough immigration policies. Some carried signs reading, BMC cares for all patients, and we believe that healthy women equals healthy families equals healthy society. Well, China says it has agreed with the United States to gradually cancel tariffs, which should help to ameliorate the $38 billion consumer price tag. And um, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will visit the White House next week. Federal uh, judges struck down a rule allowing clinicians to object to abortions for moral or religious reasons. And Kamala Harris has proposed a 10-hour school day. A 10-hour school day. I mentioned it twice because you probably thought you misunderstood me. A Michigan man underpaid his property taxes by $8.41. The county seized his property sold it, and kept the profits. The illegal immigrant population inside the United States has surged to 550,000 in 2019, according to the Washington Examiner. 
And the Department of Justice is charging two former Twitter employees with spying for the Saudi government. Well, on this day in history, the Los Angeles Lakers star Magic Johnson announced he has tested positive for HIV and is retiring. Well, Johnson later returned to the NBA and played until 1996. Despite his HIV status, the now 60-year-old Johnson has been able to sustain himself with medication and the best doctors to this day. On this uh, day in 1862, during the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln replaces Major General George B. McClellan as commander of the Army of the Potomac with Major General Ambrose Burnside. Boy, that's quite a story. Might want to look that up if you're not familiar with it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, take a few look, uh, look at a few more dates, and we'll be back with more of what's going on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Winding through some of the dates that correspond with today's date, November 7th. In 1874, the Republican Party is symbolized as an elephant in a cartoon drawn by Thomas Nast in Harper's Weekly. That's how it all started. And on this day in 1916, Republican Jeanette Rankin of Montana becomes the first woman elected to Congress, winning a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. 1916. 1917, on this date, Russia's Bolshevik Revolution takes place as forces led by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin overthrow the provisional government of Alexander Kerensky. On this day in 1940, Washington State's original Tacoma Narrows Bridge, you might remember this if you've been around for a while, 1940, A nicknamed Galloping Gertie collapses into Puget Sound during a windstorm just four months after opening to traffic. On this day in 1944, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins an unprecedented fourth term in office, defeating Republican Thomas Dewey, fourth term. Aren't you glad there are term limits today? 1962, Richard M. Nixon, having lost California's gubernatorial race, holds what he calls his last press conference. That's 1962, telling reporters you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Well, actually, they did. In 1972, President Richard Nixon is reelected in a landslide over Democrat George McGovern. The rest, as they say, is history. 1967, Carl Stokes is elected the first black mayor of a major city, Cleveland. And there you have some of the important dates. I want to remind you that coming up this Saturday night, Girls Night Out, Know Your Worth, KPDQ, our sister station, The Fish, we're hosting this evening for us girls to get together to kick our shoes off and just have a good time. Girls Night Out, Know Your Worth with Revive Ministries is this Saturday night. Doors will open at 6 o'clock for appetizers. There's a photo booth, and then there's an uplifting message, uh, dessert and coffee reception. So lots to eat. A lot of fun to be had and a good time together. That's at Northwest Christian Church at the Tigard campus. If you were with us for our Amy Barnes um, night of comedy, it's the same location. Uh, You can share some laughs, be encouraged, leave feeling refreshed because you are worth it. Fat Cupcakes is sponsoring Faith Box and For the King Apparel. Find out more. Get your tickets today at kpdq.com. I believe tickets are also available at the door, but check out kpdq.com for all the important details or the uh, kpdq mobile app. Also want to remind you, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is coming soon and you could win free tickets. You can enter online to win a family four-pack of tickets to see Portland Singing Christmas Tree Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m. at the Keller Auditorium. And yes, you got the date right, Friday, November 22nd at the Keller. Enjoy a night of full holiday music with the family. You can enter once per day, so head over to kpdq.com or your uh, KPDQ mobile app for your chance to win. 
So there you have it. Well, President Trump at a campaign rally in Louisiana last night unloaded on the whistleblower attorney Mark Zaid after a Fox News article from earlier in the day revealed that Zaid tweeted about the beginning of a coup against the president back in 2017. The president extensively quoted from the article, which reported that Zaid has long called for the president's impeachment, even promising two years ago we will get rid of him. Zaid now represents the intelligence community whistleblower who is at the center of the Democrats' impeachment inquiry against the president. The whistleblower has alleged that earlier this year the president improperly threatened to withhold aid to Ukraine for political reasons. This was a second, third-hand account, but nonetheless has been substantial by at least some uh, in the community. Trump uh, uh, calling Zaid a, well, I'm not even going to go there because I don't use words like that to describe people, maybe amoebas or life forms that, you know, are single cell, but not other people. Well, Mark Zaid, one of the attorneys, uh, has uh, defended himself, uh, said in the 2017 post calling for impeachment, um, that uh, the coup tweet shouldn't be taken too seriously. As I mentioned, he's the attorney for the Ukraine um, whistleblower. Uh, he defended a series of tweets from 2017 in which he predicted that coup. Shortly after the publication of the article highlighting the uh, stream of anti-Trump tweets, he himself lambasted Zabe during the uh, rally. After tweeting lightheartedly about the controversy Wednesday night, Zaid himself sent Fox News a formal statement in which he said the social media posts were written with the belief that Donald Trump would likely be stepping over the line at at some point during his presidency. Those tweets were reflective and repeated the sentiments of millions of people, Zaid said. I was referring to a completely lawful process of which President Trump would likely face as a result of stepping over the line, and that particularly whatever would happen would come about as a result of lawyers. The coup comment referred to those working inside the administration who were already, just a week into office, standing up to him to enforce recognized rules of law, end quote. Well, the statement uh, comes as the president pointed to those 2017 statements and arguing impeachment uh, touched off uh, by the whistleblower complaint should be ended. Based on the information released last night about the fake whistleblower's attorney, he said impeachment hoax should be ended immediately. The anonymous whistleblower filed the complaint earlier this year about the 20 July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky in which he asked Zelensky to assist in investigations of corruption. Zaid has been critical of the president since the start of his administration. As was reported, he tweeted less than two weeks into uh, Trump's presidency that hashtag coup has started and that hashtag impeachment will follow ultimately. In the February 5th, 2017, still less than a month into the president's term, Zaid said every day that goes by brings us closer to impeachment. Well, the following week, in response to an accusation that Zaid had taken sides against the president, the attorney was completely transparent in his animus. 100 percent. I'm not hiding anything. He tweeted anti-Trump, worst presidential choice in modern history, not a repub or dim issue, end quote. Then in July of 2017, he remarked, I predict that CNN will play a key role in at real Donald Trump not finishing out his full term as president. Also that month, he tweeted, we will get rid of him and this country is strong enough to survive even him and his supporters. End quote. I'm not a Trump fan, Zaid said on a podcast last year. I go out of my way on Twitter to say hashtag resistance. It's not a resistance against the GOP or a Republican. I don't think Donald Trump is a Republican, quite frankly. Zaid also boasted that he has sued every president since 1993. And Trump uh, first responded by uh, to learning about this uh, tweet at a campaign rally, as I mentioned, in Louisiana. So, again, another front in which the back and forth 
continues. Well, the U.S. and China have taken another step toward finalizing a part of a long-term trade deal. The two countries have agreed to roll back at least some tariffs on each other's goods uh, in the first phase of the deal, if it is in fact reached. Well, the amount of uh, tariff relief will depend on the content of the phase one agreement, Chinese Ministry of Finance spokesperson Gao Feng said on Thursday. U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross left uh, uh, the event uh, rather encouraged by it all. In the past two weeks, lead negotiators have had serious and constructive discussions on resolving issues of core concern. Both sides agreed to remove the additional tariffs imposed in phases as progress is made on the agreement. Agreement, uh, said Mr. Fang. If China and the U.S. reach a phase one deal, both sides should roll back existing additional tariffs in the same proportion simultaneously. There have been hopes that the first phase would be signed in coming weeks. Removing the tariffs has been a key sticking point in getting a deal done. Earlier this week, it was reported that a 15 percent cut in tariffs on $111 billion in Chinese imports was being discussed. Talks have recently centered on putting the finishing touches on the phase one pact, which would include Chinese purchase of American farm goods, rules to deter currency manipulation and some provisions to protect intellectual property and open up Chinese industries industries rather to U.S. firms. In a conference call Tuesday, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said he was reasonably optimistic that the phase one talks would be finished. More difficult issues would wait for later rounds, he said. We're hoping phase one will be a precursor to later agreements. Trump and Xi were due to meet at this month's uh, gathering in the Asia Pacific leaders, uh, but the event was canceled due to protests there that um, uh, sort of dented hopes a meeting might produce progress. But the Chinese government says the two leaders maintain contact. Both sides are still working on the timing and location for a signing ceremony. Again, phase one. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I want to remind you that in the 5 o'clock hour, I had a conversation with Frank Gaffney earlier in the day. He is CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. Uh, He's the founder and executive director of the Center for Security Policy as well, and vice chairman, excuse me, for Committee on the Present Danger, China, we're going to talk about Save the Persecuted uh, Christians. It's a an organization that represents a number of uh, groups and individuals who are working toward uh, eliminating uh, or at least relieving to whatever degree as possible uh, the suffering of Christians who are persecu- persecuted around the globe. We'll tell you more about that. We'll also uh, ask him to weigh in on the House resolution that was passed a week ago on the Armenian genocide, um, which was uh, the result of the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, Erdogan is going to be visiting the United States. I believe it's next week, as I mentioned earlier, and what impact that's likely to have on that effort. We'll also talk about the traveling exhibits, the people of the cross and warfare on women that focus on Christian persecution as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, George Kent, a career official at the State Department, told House investigators conducting the impeachment inquiry against the president that he raised concerns about Hunter Biden's lucrative service on the board of a Ukrainian natural gas company, but was told at the time that it wasn't appropriate to discuss the matter because of the health struggles of Vice President Biden's eldest son, Bo. Well, according to a transcript of his October 15th closed-door deposition released 
today. He confirmed that he had no direct knowledge that U.S. aid to Ukraine was ever connected to the opening of a new investigation against the Bidens concerning their business dealings there. Well, Kent said that in January or February of 2015, he became aware that Hunter Biden was on the board of Ukrainian company Burisma Holdings, while his father, Joe Biden, was overseeing Ukraine policy as vice president. I did not know that at the time, he testified, and when I was on a call with somebody on the vice president's staff, and I cannot recall who it was, just briefing on what was happening into Ukraine, I raised my concerns that I had heard that Hunter Biden was on the board of a company owned by somebody that the U.S. government had spent money trying to get tens of millions of dollars back from, and that could create the perception of a conflict of interest. Well, after discussing those concerns with Biden's staff, Kent testified, the testimony that I recall hearing back was that the vice president's son, Bo was dying of cancer and that there was no further bandwidth to deal with family related issues at that time. Well, Kent, who served as deputy assistant secretary of state and was defying the State Department's instructions that he not testify, additionally confirmed that nobody in the Ukrainian government became aware of a hold on military aid until the 29th of August, a month after Trump's July 25 uh, phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Democrats have alleged that uh, Trump threatened to withhold military aid to Ukraine unless Zelensky agreed to investigate the Biden's dealings there, although Zelensky has said he felt no pressure at all. Kent testified that to the best of his knowledge, the aid uh, issue was ultimately resolved by the president and U.S. military aid was released to Ukraine in September. However, there was a period when Ukraine was on notice that the aid was suspended. Political reported in August that the Ukraine aid was uh, being held up two weeks before it was released. Kent further acknowledged that it is um, appropriate for the Trump administration to look at the level of corruption in foreign countries when determining whether to provide or withhold financial assistance. Speaking to Zelensky, the president noted Ukraine's history of corruption and urged his uh, counterpart to probe any potential election interference efforts originating from the country. Part of our foreign assistance was specifically focused to try to limit and reduce corruption, Kent said in his testimony. And we also tried to the best of our knowledge and abilities to do due diligence to make sure that U.S. taxpayer dollars are being spent for the purposes that they were appropriated and that they are as effective as they can be. Well, the GOP will likely focus on the fact that Kent testified he was getting secondhand information from Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman regarding concerns about Trump's call with Ukraine's leaders. Republicans are expected to argue that while Vindman expressed reservations about the July call, Kent was giving House investigators nothing more than his own interpretation of how Vindman perceived the conversation. Republicans are also focusing on how Kent was evidently upset about being pushed to the side on Ukraine policy and arguing that while there may have been irregular channels for diplomacy, such an arrangement is not an impeachable offense. Well, President Donald Trump's two Supreme Court picks, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, may be the highest profile judicial nominations, but they are just two of the 157 men and women who have reshaped the federal judiciary. Adam Kennedy, deputy assistant to the president and deputy director of communications at the White House, says out of every four active judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, they've been appointed by President Trump. In an interview, he said the average age is actually a full 10 years younger for these justices than under President Barack Obama. Well, the president celebrated his administration's judicial appointments at a White House ceremony on Wednesday. He gathered with U.S. senators and other supporters to mark the occasion. Uh, suggesting that 
this is going to have a significant impact moving forward. Again, Adam Kennedy says uh, we've been pushing hard and working hand in hand with the Senate to make sure that we have qualified judges on these courts, judges who are going to interpret the Constitution as written and to make sure that they move at a quick pace and that we have the most qualified people capable to sit on the bench. And then we're seeing the results. We've actually already flipped two different courts. The Second Circuit and the 11th have already flipped over uh, because of this, and we're going to continue to make progress. He went on to say that those are actually some of the most important judges, because uh, referring to circuit court judges, because only a few cases actually get picked up by the Supreme Court. The appellate level, the circuit level, those are where a lot of the cases are heard and where a lot of the lasting decisions are made and where a lot of precedent is made. So by making progress there, the president's really putting a lasting imprint on how the Constitution will be interpreted going forward, and it's going to be interpreted as it was written. Again, the president celebrating how he has reshaped the court by the sheer numbers of appointments that have been made under his watch. Meanwhile, a federal judge in New York on Wednesday struck down a new Trump administration rule that would have allowed health care clinicians to refuse to provide abortions for moral or religious reasons. U.S. District Judge Paul Engelmeyer of the Southern District of New York rejected the federal rule after women's groups, health organizations in multiple states sued the Department of Health and Human Services, arguing the exemptions were unconstitutional. Engelmeyer ruled that the so-called conscience rule was too coercive, allowing HHS to withhold billions of federal funding unless health care providers complied. Wherever the outermost lines were uh, where persuasion gives way to coercion lies, the threat to pull all HHS funding here crosses it, Engelmeyer wrote in a 147-page decision, according to Reuters. He added that the rule was arbitrary and capricious. Well, the ruling came in three consolidated lawsuits. According to the Associated Press, one consisted of 19 states, the District of Columbia, and three local governments. The refusal of care rule was an unlawful attempt to allow health care providers to openly discriminate and refuse to provide necessary health care, although abortion as health care seems somewhat puzzling to me, uh, to provide necessary health care to patients based on providers, religious beliefs, or moral objections. New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James, who led the lawsuit for the state, said, we will continue to use every tool at our disposal to protect access to health care and protect the rights of all individuals. Well, the Trump administration rule, which would have taken effect on the 22nd of this month, would have allowed providers and health care organizations to opt out of performing abortions and other services if the clinicians objected to them on moral or religious grounds. Opponents argued the rule posed a threat not just to women seeking abortions, but also to LGBTQ patients because providers could argue that treating them was against their personal beliefs. Well, today's, of course, that has not happened, but today's decision is an important victory, they said, against the Trump administration's cruel and unlawful attempts to roll back critical patient protections, uh, says the senior staff attorney with Reproductive Freedom Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Supporters of the rule said the judge's ruling forced providers to perform procedures against their wills. Uh, This decision leaves healthcare professionals across America vulnerable to being forced to perform, facilitate, or refer for procedures that violate their conscience. Stephanie Taub, senior counsel for the First Liberty Institute, the legal organization representing the administration. The Trump administration's HHS protections would ensure that healthcare professionals are free to work consistent with their religious beliefs while providing the best care to their patients. 
My guess is we have not seen the end of that. Well, the election day took place earlier this week, and it was thought that the turnout this time around was uh, significantly less than, well, what was uh, typical for this uh, time of the uh, the season. But was Oregon's turnout terrible? Well, apparently there was a surge the last day and voting prevented record lows, although it wasn't an impressive high. A surge of last day voting here in Portland lifted voter turnout above uh, record lows for an election held in November of an odd numbered year. Nowhere was the throng of last minute voters more dramatic than in Multnomah County. 55,000 voters turned in their ballots on Election Day, accounting for more than 30 percent of votes cast during the two and a half weeks that ballots were available. Turnout in Oregon's most populous county reached 32.3 percent, according to morning tallies on Wednesday. That edged the 2017 rate of 31.8 percent. But just barely. Clackamas County voters also rode a last day stampede to reach a respectable turnout for an odd year election. 30 percent there. That was notable because outside of West Lynn and Happy Valley, the only question on most ballots was whether to renew a small levy to control mosquitoes and the longstanding property tax for metro parks and natural land. Washington County voters were the metro area's slackers. Just 27 percent of registered voters bothered to turn in a ballot. Again, a lack of High-profile measures likely contributed. Outside of Wilsonville, Sherwood, and King City, the metro measure was the only item on the ballot. Voters in 13 Oregon counties didn't even receive ballots, as there was not a single ballot question in any jurisdiction. Most of those were rural counties in eastern or southern Oregon. The city of Hood River had a particularly heated issue on the ballot. Should the public have to vote before the city can dispose of any parkland? Park champions put that measure on the ballot after the city council preliminarily agreed to rezone a portion of a city-owned lot containing forested open space and the Hood River Disc Golf Course so affordable housing could be built there. Well, Hood River voters turned out in high numbers and the vote was lopsided. 72% backed amending the city charter to require voter approval. Well, here's the turnout ranked in counties, um, Outside the metro area, Hood River, 48 percent, Douglas County, 41, Benton, 38, Lincoln County, 37, Josephine, 35. And it goes down from there with Columbia, Jackson, Lynn and um, Umatilla, Lane and Coos County at the lowest, 16 percent. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, looking forward to sharing a conversation with Frank Gaffney. He's CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. It's a relatively new organization, and it's made up of a number of organizations whose names you might recognize and individuals who are determined together to coordinate efforts to relieve the suffering of persecuted Christians around the world. So we'll talk with him about that. Frank Gaffney is also the executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy, Vice Chairman for the Committee on the Present Danger. They focus on China. We're going to talk about the organization Save the Persecuted Christians. We'll talk about the recently passed House resolution on Armenian genocide and why that's important. We'll talk about their traveling exhibits. There are a couple of them traveling together. In fact, if you're interested in presenting them, uh, the People of the Cross and Warfare on Women, uh, they focus, of course, on the persecuted church. And uh, again, it's a traveling exhibit. 
And we'll talk about their news aggregator, the ChristianPersecutionNews.com. It's a great clearinghouse for information if you'd like to follow what's happening in the body of Christ where persecution Uh, is uh, prevalent. That's coming up in the next hour of today's program. Well, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is preparing to file paperwork to qualify for the Democratic presidential primary in Alabama ahead of a Friday deadline there. The move would be the first step toward a national campaign. Bloomberg hasn't made a final decision to run yet, but one would assume if he takes that step that The next step would be, yes, I'm going to run. We now need to finish the job and ensure that Trump is defeated. But Mike is increasingly concerned that the current field of candidates is not well positioned to do that. That's a quote from a longtime Bloomberg aide, Howard Howard Wolfson, uh, speaking in an email. He says if Mike runs, he would offer a new choice to Democrats uh, to build on a unique record. Uh, running America's biggest city, building a business from scratch and taking on some of America's toughest challenges as a high impact philanthropist. Well, Bloomberg has engaged in a will he or won't he routine for over a decade about running for president, but declined to jump in each time. Well, earlier this year, he was exploring a bid only to bow out after former Vice President Joe Biden made clear he would run. I believe I would defeat Donald Trump in a general election, Bloomberg wrote back in March, but I'm clear eyed about the difficulty of winning the Democratic nomination in such a crowded field. Well, it's thinned just a bit, but not much. He tried to, he's tired rather of being the almost ran, said one former Bloomberg advisor on a Thursday after the New York Times first reported news of his moves. Um, uh, mortality is weighing heavily on him. This is the last time that he can run. Well, Bloomberg will almost certainly not qualify for the next debate in Atlanta on the 20th of this month, and he will likely have to spend tens of millions of his own dollars in the next few weeks to make the debate stage in December, potentially setting a record for campaign spending in a short amount of time. His current wealth is estimated at $52 billion. So, you know, a million here, a million there might not be too difficult for him. Uh, Bloomberg and his money have the potential to scramble the Democratic field where no clear front runner has emerged, although, you know, it's a neck and neck race. Asked by Bloomberg uh, why he changed his mind and whether he was underwhelmed by Biden's performance on the trail. An aide said that it's not about any one candidate, but the aide did add he's worried about the state of the Democratic primary campaign and the possibility that we could lose in November. He wants to avoid that more than anything else. So we'll Continue to follow that story to see if Michael Bloomberg does, in fact, throw his hat in the race. Well, in a major defeat for illegal alien advocates, uh, voters in Tucson, Arizona, overwhelmingly rejected a proposal to designate it as the state's one and only sanctuary city. Tucson voters on Tuesday resoundingly opposed an initiative known as Proposition 205 that would have given sweeping protections to uh, those in the country illegally and prohibited local law enforcement from working with immigration and custom enforcement agents. At the close of the poll, over 71 percent of voters rejected that measure. Notably, the measure was opposed by every member of this Tucson City Council, all of whom are Democrats. The council members were concerned that its passage would lead to the loss of millions of dollars in federal and state funding. Leaders were very aware of the Trump administration's fight against other local jurisdictions that have passed sanctuary policies, threatening to withhold federal grants as punishment. Council members were also concerned that the measure would prohibit the city from working with federal law enforcement on issues that have no relation to immigration enforcement. 
It's refreshing to see Tucson voters and council members work collectively to reject policies that undermine federal law and harbor criminal illegal aliens. Matthew uh, Trageser, spokesperson for the Federation for American Immigration Reform, said in a Wednesday statement uh, of the election that had just concluded, while there are more than 560 sanctuary jurisdictions throughout the country, citizens nationwide are voicing their concerns and stymieing dangerous sanctuary laws. At the state level, Florida recently adopted anti-sanctuary laws. At the local level, Montgomery County, Maryland, has experienced a spate of violent crimes at the hands of those in the country illegally and also just incorporated anti-sanctuary policies, Trageser went on to say. Well, the proposal's defeat was more remarkable given the political and racial makeup of Tucson. The southern Arizona city is heavily populated by Hispanic individuals and has long been a Democratic bastion in an otherwise red state. Every member of the city council, the mayor's office, and all three congressional districts that cover the city are controlled by the Democratic Party. Despite this, only 28.6% of voters supported the sanctuary measure on Tuesday. Proposition 205 would have largely restricted city police from inquiring about an individual's immigration status. It would have also prevented police from cooperating with federal immigration authorities in regard to immigration raids and other activities by the agency. The measure, also referred to as keeping Tucson families free and together, was introduced as a rebuke to a 2010 law passed by state lawmakers that bans sanctuary cities in Arizona. The People's Defense Initiative, a pro-immigration group, campaigned for its passage. We're incredibly proud of the hard work and inspiring commitment of our team and the hundreds of Tucsonians, never heard that word before, but I guess that fits, who made this campaign uh, their very own. Well, as Tucson residents soundly rejected the sanctuary proposal, they also elected Regina Romero as their next mayor, the first Latina to hold the position. Now, the presumption, I guess, in uh, some of the shock and awe of the outcome is that if you happen to be of Um, Latin descent, then you would naturally vote in favor of Sanctuary City, but apparently not the case. Tucson's rejected sanctuary proposition should serve as a model for other jurisdictions wishing to fight back against policies that minimize public safety and encourage more illegal immigration. Uh, into communities, Trageser finally went on to say. And the Los Angeles Times recently reported that conservatives are moving out of California at an unprecedented rate. The Times cited a UC Berkeley study revealing that just over half of California's registered voters have considered leaving the state and that Republicans and conservative voters were nearly three times as likely as their Democrat or liberal counterparts to seriously have considered moving. The reasons conservatives gave for wanting to leave were high, were high taxes, cost of living, and an antagonizing one-sided political culture. From 2007 to 2016, California lost more than 1 million residents, or 2.5% of the population. In 2017 alone, 63,175 Californians moved to Texas, the top destination for residents moving out of the Golden State. High cost of living, thanks in large part to Democrat policies and regulations, has been one of the biggest factors in driving people out, both Democrat and Republican. To buy a house in El Segunda near Santa Monica is insane, says one. It's like a $1 million, complained former California resident Marie Bailey. Uh, why, we are, um, uh, why are we working our, well, tails off for a fixer-upper in El Segunda? We're just working, 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 and for what? In fact, she said they could buy a home uh, where they have moved to with the taxes they have saved. The largest factor in leading uh, 
conservative residents is uh, to consider leaving California is the state's increasingly intolerant and authoritarian state government and culture. In many ways, the state's um, Democrat officials are straining at gnats, exemplified by the state's anti-straw regulation, which, while swallowing camels, as officials loudly declare California a sanctuary state for illegal aliens and fail to deal with the homeless population. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. Also in the next hour, Frank Gaffney, CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. In our next segment, we're going to talk with Frank Gaffney as in his capacity as CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. The organization is a, a collection of uh, organizations focusing on ministering to and advocating for persecuted believers around the world. We'll talk about uh, the organization in particular, we'll talk about the House Resolution on Armenian Genocide. We'll also talk about a traveling exhibit that is available to come to this area upon request and much, much more. They also have a news aggregator, ChristianPersecutionNews.com, if you'd like to follow what's happening around the world. It's a collection from all of the organizations that make up the Save the, the Persecuted Christians organization to help you stay well-informed. He'll be joining us in our next segment. Also want to remind you, Portland Singing Christmas Tree is coming sooner than you might think, and you could win free tickets. You can enter online to win a family four-pack of tickets to see Portland Singing Christmas Tree with Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenidge. November 22nd is KPDQ night. We would love for you to win tickets to join us. That's 7.30 p.m. at the Keller Auditorium. Enjoy a night full of holiday music with the family. You can enter once per day, so head over to kpdq.com or your mobile app kpdq mobile app for your chance to win and the time is drawing close for the girls night out know your worth kpdq and our sister station the fist we are hosting an evening for well just us girls we're going to be at northwest christian church in Tigard um, saturday night the doors will open at six o'clock p.m with appetizers appetizers. There's a photo booth. Lots of fun, uh, followed by an uplifting message, dessert and coffee reception afterward. Just a time of fellowship and for us to be reminded of the value that we have to one another and our value in Christ. Fat Cupcakes will be providing some of our treats. Faith Box and For the King Apparel are also providing a resource for our event. For more details and to purchase your ticket, you can go to kpdq.com. You can also arrive at the event. I believe you can show up and buy your tickets there as well. That's coming up this Saturday night, Northwest Christian Church, the Tigard Campus. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, pro-lifers hailed some good news recently. The rate of abortions in the United States has fallen to a record low. Well, that's great news, according to a recent report from the Guttmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood. But the report also included some bad news. Of the more than 860,000 abortions in the United States in 2017, chemical abortions increased 25 percent from 2014 and now account for nearly four in 10 abortions in the U.S., And that doesn't include self-induced abortions, which the report indicates are also going up. In 2014, 12% of abortion facilities treated women who had attempted a do-it-yourself abortion and suffered complications. But by 2017, that figure had reached 18%. That percentage may still be increasing because of Aid Access, a relatively new abortion organization that aims to push self-induced chemical abortions 
on the United States. Now, Eight Access is the first uh, or is the U.S. focused spinoff of Women on Web. It's an organization created to push chemical abortion on nations where it's prohibited by law or not necessarily accessible. Well, over the past year and a half, Aid Access has illegally shipped more than 7,000 abortion pill packages to American women. They've also published testimonials from women in Georgia, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, and acknowledge that at least 39 Idaho residents have um, been sent pills as well. Well, in March, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration ordered Aid Access to stop, but the organization has ignored that warning and responded with a lawsuit against the FDA. Well, the lawsuit claims the FDA seized as many as 10 shipments of these abortion pills. Uh, The organization's illegal distribution of the pills, which goes undocumented in official abortion reporting, may be changing the United States abortion landscape by artificially lowering reported abortion rates in some states and driving up abortion overall. So for those pro-life activists, and whether that simply means you are prepared to uh, engage in civil conversation on the subject or you're involved in um, a pregnancy resource center or perhaps an advocacy group, um, this, this is important information. Aid access claims to meet a growing demand, according to The Guardian, that's a U.K. source. Most of their uh, pills are sent to women in states with strong pro-life policies, a category that includes many states that uh, with relatively high online search rates for information on do-it-yourself abortions. One such state, South Dakota, recently reported its lowest annual abortion total since 1973. More South Dakota women traveled out of state for abortions in 2018, no doubt contributing to that lower total. But South Dakota also reported a sudden drop in chemical abortions. At least one South Dakota woman was mailed abortion pills, as evidenced by testimonials from aid access. Other South Dakotans uh, may have followed suit, driving down the number of reported abortions as a result. In other states with high online search rates, though, officially reported abortions actually increased. In Oklahoma, for example, most uh, total abortions and chemical abortions increased by 6%. And although this organization likely commands a share of the uh, market in both states, that influence isn't reflected as a drop in the official numbers. Well, could they be expanding demand for abortion in these states, mailing pills to women who wouldn't have had abortions otherwise, as some of its customers acknowledge? Well, uh, one woman uh, writes on their <clears throat> their page, I could not afford to go to a clinic and was afraid uh, that after having an ultrasound and counseling sessions, uh, they make you go through that I would be conflicted. So she didn't want to be persuaded. She didn't want to think too deeply about whether or not to move forward. Another explains, without you, I would have brought a child into the world, which is a sad statement. Um, Aid access uh, wouldn't be the first to use the strategy. Abortion giant Planned Parenthood has increased demand for abortions in the United States. They've outpaced its uh, smaller competitors as well. But the influence of this newer organization on U.S. abortion trends is more difficult to measure. Fewer than half the states have released abortion data for 2018, the year uh, Aid Access launched. And the most recent national report from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention contains data from 2015. National data for 2018 won't be available for several more years. But something to uh, consider in the absence of an abortion clinic. um, Apparently, this is an option that's being sought. Well, there were more shocking revelations from abortionists this week as the witness and evidence presentations ended yesterday for the civil trial in the San Francisco Federal District Court. This involves 
um, the uh, organization that has been providing inside information on what Planned Parenthood has been doing. Well, admissions on the witness stand this week included the founder, President Linda Tracy, and procurement manager Perrin Larton of Advanced Bioscience Resources, Inc. It's a U.S. wholesaler of aborted baby body parts since 1989. Well, their yearly revenues are about $1.1 to $1.5 million, all from harvesting and purchasing livers, lungs, and brains in abortion facilities and reselling those parts to taxpayer-funded research laboratories at enormous markup prices. Now think about that for a moment. We're not talking about Nazi Germany. Tracy stated under oath in her deposition for the uh, the trial that the conversation she had with Delayden was not private or confidential. In court this week, she claimed it was. Tracy also tried to say that she didn't discuss pricing of fetal tissue at National Abortion Federation's conference. Yet in her videotaped deposition played in court, she indicated uh, that she, in fact, did. She further testified in her deposition that uh, she discussed ABR's regulated tissue acquisition harvesting, for which researchers pay $6,000 per procurement. She also testified that she does not recant any of the statements she made to David Delayden about babies falling out intact for organ harvesting and that ABR could receive intact fetuses as frequently as every couple months. Well, Liberty Council is defending Sarah, Sandra Merritt against Planned Parenthood's civil lawsuit, seeking millions of dollars as punishment for her undercover investigation work with David Delayden and the Center for Medical Progress, which exposed the largest abortion mills trafficking in human baby body parts. Closing arguments began Uh, I should say, begin on Tuesday, November 12th. Up next, we'll hear from Frank Gaffney. What's going on with the persecuted church and what can we do to have an impact to support those who suffer? That's up next here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, as you know, uh, the international prayer for the persecuted church straddles the first two weekends in November, and we focused a lot on the persecuted church here on this program, having had the opportunity to meet with those who live under that persecution on several occasions over the years. Well, I want to introduce to you an organization that's doing some significant work. I'm talking about Save the Persecuted Christians. It's an informal alliance of individuals and organizations that's committed to dramatically reducing and, if possible, ending the oppression of believers worldwide. They advocate on behalf of hundreds of millions of Christians facing heavy persecution worldwide. And here to talk with us about that is Frank Gaffney. He is CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. He's also founder and executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy. Policy and vice chairman of committee for uh, on the present danger, China. Uh, we're talking about Save the Persecuted Christians, the organization that's doing some significant work. And I hope we'll have time as well to talk about the recently passed House resolution on Armenian genocide, that and much, much more. Frank Gaffney, it is such an honor to have you with us today. Welcome. The honor is mine. Thank you very much. Well, let's begin by talking about uh, Save the Persecuted Christians. As I mentioned, this is a collection of individuals and organizations that are focusing on relieving the suffering and informing the public, the church and the general public, of the persecution that's going on at uh, rates that have exceeded uh, historically what Christians have suffered from the very beginning. That's right. Uh, It started as an informal coalition of organizations and individuals, as you say, Um, What we're working on now is building it into really a grassroots movement that will hopefully enlist many Americans 
behind this catastrophe and and the need to correct it, uh, namely what is afflicting approximately, by some estimates, 327 million Christians around the world. And just for calibration purposes, that's approximately the same number of men, women, and children in the United States today. And this isn't happening in some you know, distant historical cut. This is happening now, and it is something we have to do something about. Well, these numbers are staggering, and oftentimes we're easily overwhelmed by the sheer scope of uh, the, the, the problem. Let's talk about what's happening and what kind of impact regular people like me and our listeners uh, might have on changing the circumstances of believers who live in uh, circumstances that are unacceptable by any measure. Well, let's start with talking about what's being done right now, and that is by large numbers of of groups and individuals, uh, many of them actually involved with our coalition. There are people who are trying to do something about the suffering of Christians around the world uh, by reducing their suffering, uh, by finding ways to get them everything from uh, water and food and medicine and clothing and shelter and refuge. These are extraordinary people doing oftentimes very dangerous work. And one of the things that individuals can do, of course, is support them in that work. Um, There are uh, on our website lists of organizations that are members, and we commend to you all of them as serious contributors to helping the plight of persecuted Christians. What we came together to do, however, as an informal coalition, as I said, is something different, uh, we think unique, and very much needed. Because I mentioned the number 327 million. Um, By the estimates of another group, Open Doors, um, we have about 245 million Christians who are being very heavily persecuted, as opposed to others who are being less so, but just suffering nonetheless. That number, according to Open Doors, 245 million is 30 million more this year than last year. So the trend is in the wrong direction. And what we're suggesting is that in addition to trying to deal, if you will, somewhat symptomatically with the problem, we need in addition an effort made to try to deal with it systemically. That is to say, to go at the cause of the problem, to try to address, in other words, a patient that is dealing with cancer, not by applying bandages, but, you know, causally affecting what's going on. And how are we trying to do that? We're trying, and individuals like you and your listeners can help us with this by becoming part of this movement, um, is to raise awareness about the problem in the first instance, and then secondly, to insist both as, again, individuals and groups and and, uh, citizens of this country and as a government as well that represents us, that we do something to hold the persecutors accountable and to create costs to them for what they're doing so that it's not just basically something they can do with impunity, which is pretty much the case today. Mm -hmm. We think that if we can create real pressure for those kinds of changes, accountability and cost imposition, we may affect uh, the lives of millions of Christians around the world, um, and, and we can do no less. Now, what do you say to those, and I've heard this argument made, 
that in Scripture we are told that, that, that tribulation and trouble will come, and that if we work to alleviate that in others who are suffering— uh, and this is a remarkable argument from my perspective, but if we work to alleviate that, that we're somehow working counter to what God would intend for us. Uh, what do you say to those that uh, would argue that we really should not have a role in trying to alleviate the suffering of brothers and sisters in Christ who are being heavily persecuted around the world? Well, I think that's a pretty selective reading of uh scripture. Mm-hmm. There's there's plenty that um, make it clear that, that we are our brother's keepers, and we are called specifically by Jesus to help the believers. And I, I there's no question he anticipated that they would suffer for belief in him, but it's not enough to simply say, well, you know, they are, and that's that. And, you know, quite apart from being Christians and, and having a duty to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, I think that we have a humanitarian mm-hmm. duty as well. And where there's this kind of suffering taking place on our watch, it is, you know, clearly um, contrary to everything we believe as Christians, that uh, we would be indifferent to it. So I, I don't, I've never heard that argument made, actually. I, I just I hear people say, well, it's just too hard, or, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing we can do about it because it's over there, or what have you. But the, the reality is um, there are lots of places in the world that want to be on good terms with the United States, that want foreign aid, that want military sales, or want simple political legitimation, these are things that we can do something about um, by affecting our, our, how our government handles uh, those kinds of relationships. And I think it can make a profound difference in the behavior of uh, many countries, maybe not all, but we've got to start with the ones that we can affect. And yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. convinced. And, you know, just if I could very quickly say this, this isn't something that we've just dreamed up. This is really modeled after something that we saw happen and work back in the 1960s and 70s when a grassroots movement came together to try to save persecuted Jews in the Soviet Union. And an extraordinary number of things happened as a result of that movement. Um, a, A political leverage was created. A guy I wound up working for, a United States senator by the name of Scoop Jackson, created a, a, a kind of pressure on the Soviet Union that they would not get most favored nation status, something they desperately wanted and turned out really needed, unless they allowed Jews and others to emigrate. They didn't do it. They didn't get it. And another guy that I had the privilege of working for subsequently, Ronald Reagan, came along and used the fact that they didn't have that financial safety net, if you will, to ultimately use economic warfare decisively against that regime. And lo and behold, through God's grace and the leadership of these people, but starting with grassroots Americans who came together for this purpose, we wound up freeing not only a couple million Jews in the Soviet Union, but hundreds of millions of other people from the evil empire. That's the kind of miracle that we think we need now, and that, again, with God's grace and the help of listeners like yours and people all across this country, I believe we can do similarly miraculous things for Christians in our time. We're talking with Frank Gaffney. He is CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking with Frank Gaffney. He is the CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. Uh, some of the shocking facts about Christian persecution in our lifetime. More Christians have died for their faith over the last 100 years than in all prior centuries since Jesus' time combined. Nearly one million Christians were martyred in the decade between 2005 and 2015 alone. And according to Aid to the Church in Need, which released its biannual uh, report on religious freedom in the world on November or rather in November, over 300 million Christians experience persecution. According to Open Doors USA World Watch list, 245 million Christians are victims of high to extreme levels of persecution. That includes torture and rape, sex slavery, expulsion, murder, and genocide. That's an increase of 14 percent over 2018. And Open Doors also estimates that one in nine of the world's believers experience persecution and that every month 345 Christians were killed often in public and without regard to their gender or their age. 219 Christians are abducted and imprisoned indefinitely without trial, and 106 churches are demolished. We're talking today about Save the Persecuted Christians, an organization that provides a means for us to become better informed and then to impact, to influence what's happening in many of these places. Uh, Once again, talking with Frank Gaffney, who is CEO and president of Save the Persecuted Christians. Um, Christians. Where do we begin to have an impact? Obviously, we need to be well informed about what's happening, but from there, where where can we have an impact? Well, one of the things that we modeled this campaign for persecuted Christians around, as I mentioned before the break, is what was done for Soviet Jewry, and it began with simple signs outside of, in that case, mostly synagogues, but some churches. And what we've made available to people, if they wish to join this campaign, um, is to have a, a free banner available for them to place outside of their house of worship, saying simply, save us, savethepersecutedchristians.org. And you can go to savethepersecutedchristians.org to find out how you can get one of these banners. We also have tools that can be made available to you to um, help educate people in more detail um, for a nominal cost. Uh, For example, uh, some banners that we've put together in exhibits that tell the story of persecution of Christians in some 20-odd countries around the world, Um, what form it takes, uh, what the toll it takes is, and 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 this the impact I have to say we've we've displayed it in the U.S. Capitol this exhibit in state capitals around the country in you know various other public venues and churches invariably Georgian there is a response to it that is stunning because people don't comprehend mm-hmm. despite what you just shared with them in terms of the data they just don't get the impact of what this involves until they look at these pictures. They look at what is happening in country after country after country after country. And again, going to savethepersecutedchristians.org will give you an opportunity to see those banners and uh, decide if you'd like to have them in your church or your city hall or veterans, uh, you know, uh, uh, annex or what have you. And then beyond that, what we've invited people to do is to become part of our coalition, uh, to join up, to sign petitions, to become actively involved in, um, for example, holding the enablers of persecutors accountable as well. That's something that we don't need the government to do. For example, there's a 
very prominent law firm. I don't know if it's got an office out in your neck of the woods, but it's in a lot of different cities across this country. It's called Squire Patton Boggs. And it's not the only law firm that does this, uh, but it's one of the largest lobbying operations in the uh, Washington, uh, you know, Metroplex. And it represents five terrible state sponsors of persecution, the communist Chinese, the Saudis, the Qataris, Cameroon, and the Palestinian Authority. And like other law firms or lobbying operations that enable these countries to get away with doing this kind of thing, they can be held accountable too. In fact, we had a a campaign uh, earlier this year where we went to 15 different offices of Squire Patton Boggs around the United States, just urging them to drop these clients because it's, it's causing them reputational harm and it's causing Christians around the world. Um, incalculable suffering. And so that's the kind of thing that people can pull in behind. And then, of course, interacting with your own representatives and encouraging them to do the things that government needs to do to, uh, again, hold persecutors accountable and to create costs to them for what they're doing, mm-hmm. their crimes against humanity. Are you encouraged that uh, the U.S. government is open to addressing this subject in a constructive way that can help in your efforts to inform the public and then hold those who are uh, responsible uh, responsible in ways that will uh, hit the cost that means something to them? Look, I'm not sure in my lifetime I've ever seen a government of the United States that is more committed to trying to help the persecuted Christians than that of President Trump. Uh, Mike Pence, as well as the president, uh, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, the U.S. Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom, former Governor Sam Baumbach, are all deeply committed to this. The problem arises um, that despite their best efforts, um, you you may have heard of this uh, deep state problem in other contexts, you know, there's a federal bureaucracy and it's somewhat resistant, particularly the State Department, to doing uh, the sorts of things we're talking about here, in part because at the State Department, their job is to maintain very you know, friendly relations with countries all over the world, including those that are doing horrible things like these. But the point is that we need, with the support of the American people and the leadership of uh, the president, vice president, and so on, to create conditions under which this is, in fact, the policy of the United States government and it's faithfully executed. And I think that's possible, decidedly possible. And I'll, I'll share one other thing with, a, with you, if I may, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the senior uh, leaders in the State Department with responsibility in this portfolio is a fellow by the name of Bob uh, Dastro. He is Dastro. He is um, an assistant secretary of state. He was one of the representatives at a meeting that I attended on the margins of the United Nations General Assembly last month. It involved the foreign ministers of Hungary and Brazil and the Philippines and the United Kingdom. And what was so extraordinary about it, I must tell you, uh, it was a relatively small meeting, about 100 and some people, I would guess. But each of these foreign ministers speaking on behalf of their government said essentially what I've said to you tonight. They all were talking about this need for action, this need to stop what is happening in the way of this catastrophe. And specifically, several of them mentioned this very important concept that, that they would use their government's power and resources and influence to try to hold accountable those who are responsible for this persecution and to 
impose costs. For example, uh, the British foreign minister said, you know, we're now using as a filter for the foreign aid that we give, whether the recipients engage in this kind of persecution or not. That's a huge, huge step in the right direction. And I think if both our own government and others like these can begin to do this, uh, we are going to see changes in this, uh, this horror. Let me ask you one quick question before our time is up. I know the House recently passed a resolution that acknowledges the Armenian genocide. And while many of our listeners may not be familiar with recognizing the Armenian genocide and what that was, how important was it and how do you think this will impact or has it impacted the U.S.-Turkey relations? Well, you mentioned that this century has been particularly horrible for Christians. Um, It started with a genocidal campaign against Christians conducted by what was then known as the Ottoman Empire. It's now modern-day Turkey, in part. Uh, And the guy who is currently running the modern state of Turkey has as his ambition to restore the Ottoman Empire. And one of the things that he's all about is persecuting Christians, among other minorities, by the way, but particularly Christians. Uh, His name is uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And he's been in the news of late, as you know, in connection with uh, his invasion of Syria. This resolution in the House of Representatives, I think, was very important. Um, It signaled that the United States Congress, at least the House of Representatives, is highly critical of what Erdogan is doing today and its antecedents in what happened back then. And I think this is both needed uh, urgently and it's high time that we held the Turks accountable both for their current behavior as well as what they did in the past. Well, Frank Gaffney, I thank you so much for your leadership in this effort and for taking the time to join us here today. It's a privilege. Thank Thank you you for having me, and thanks for spreading the word. Once again, you can go to the website, SaveThePersecutedChristians.org, for more information. You can learn about their traveling exhibit, The People of the Cross. You can learn about the news aggregate, ChristianPersecutionNews.com. You can actually subscribe online. There's much, much more there, and I would encourage you to check that out. Again, SaveThePersecutedChristians.org for more information. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I'm always thrilled when there's a story told about someone who is a believer, and it's told well and correctly. Well, the new Harriet biopic, it's... uh, Uh, is faithful to Tubman's faith. That's according to biographer Kate Clifford Larson. And she recently was interviewed on the famous female abolitionist and the cinematic portrayal of her life, which she indicates is for the most part faithful. There are some Hollywood uh, liberties taken, as is always expected, but for the most part, apparently they did a pretty good job. Well, Harriet Tubman is one of America's most iconic figures. That's evidenced by the proposed and yet delayed Harriet Tubman $20 bill and the new biopic or biopic, depending on how you prefer to say it, Harriet. It was produced by Focus Features. Well, after she escaped slavery in 1849, she worked as the only female conductor on the Underground Railroad. She assisted escapees along a short route through free states. She was one of the few who, at great risk, entered slave-holding states to extract slaves and lead them north to freedom. She was nicknamed Moses by an abolitionist. His name was William Lloyd Garrison. Very few knew her real identity. Uh, identity rather. She most assumed she was a man making these voyages. I mean, who would imagine that a woman would do such a thing at that time? 
She also served in the U.S. Army. She served as a nurse, as an advisor, a scout, and a spy. Her greatest feat in the service was leading the charge that freed over 750 slaves in the uh, Kamahi uh, River raid in South Carolina. Now, as the descendant of slaves, this is someone whose life story has always intrigued me uh, many, many years. Well, the film covers her life from 1849 to 1864, so a relatively short period of time. It released last weekend and is now available to be seen. It's about the, um, or when asked rather, about the historical accuracy of the film, her deep Christian faith and the African-American songs that were a key to her rescue missions. Uh, again, biographer Kate Clifford responded by saying that she consulted on the script more than a year ago. She tried to keep the filmmakers as close to historically accurate as possible, because the truth is the story, as it was uh, historically lived out, is a, of sufficient interest to hold the attention of any moviegoer. The director, Cassie Lemons, uh, she says, was very generous, wanted to do the right thing as much as possible. And she says they do get uh, Harriet Tubman right. Uh, Cynthia Erivo, she plays the militant, headstrong Tubman and uh, did it well. The film had some wonderful personal touches that show her as a woman, not just the freedom fighter superhero, because she was a simply uh, a mortal woman, if you will. Uh, Lemons had to make some compromises to tell the dramatic story in two hours, of course. The parts that are fictionalized are uh, compilations of slave narratives that Lemons had read about and informed her understanding of what life would have been like for Tubman and the lives of others who were slaves at the time. So while not everything happened to Tubman the way the film portrays it, those things did happen to enslaved women, men, and children. The film presents the threats to families and to enslaved women in particular, and that is the story uh, that is being told. Well, the film also demonstrates beautifully the depth of Harriet Tubman's great intellectual and uh, intelligence, rather, and fortitude. It shows how her faith sustained her, how her love of family moved her to risk her life over and over again. And people respected her, followed her, trusted her, and deeply admired her, and that's shown well in the film. She was raised in a deeply spiritual and faithful community, a community imbued with both African and Christian traditions. The seizures that she experienced after a near-fatal head injury only enhanced her feeling that God was always surrounding her, loving her, and protecting her. She spoke of how Sometimes God spoke to her and guided her, and even though she didn't always understand the purpose or intent of the messages that she received, she trusted God and followed what she heard. Her faith sustained her through her darkest hours of fear, hopelessness, and loneliness. Well, the film makes it clear that she trusts God completely, even when she has doubts and fears, and when she's leading her brother Robert and others to freedom, she has a vision during a seizure of how to protect the party uh, from harm. She tells her refugees that they can't cross the bridge and have to go a different way because she now knows the dangers are, are near that area. They come to the river, and because of her vision, she trusts God to guide her safely across. One instant, she wades across a river, not knowing how deep it is. Her brother and the others are afraid, but she keeps praying and trusting that God will see her through. She makes it to the other side, and the others are then willing to follow her. In real life, she did have seizures while conducting Freedom Seekers North. Her refugees had to wait them, uh, wait these seizures out until she recovered before they could move along. And that had to have been frightening in and of itself. And she did report sometimes receiving instructions from God while having a seizure. This particular scene in the film where they crossed the river actually happened, though not when she was rescuing her brothers. So 
the general story accurate, the details a little off. Tubman said that she sang a couple of spirituals as signals on the Underground Railroad. Uh, railroad. Two were, Oh, hail ye happy spirits, and go down Moses. Sometimes she would leave her refugees hiding somewhere while she went to looking for food or for help. She would alter the songs a bit, change the tempo as a signal to them that it was safe or not safe for them to come out. She also sang Bound for the Promised Land as a goodbye song to her mother, which um, the actress sings in the movie and as a signal that she was leaving and running away. There are other songs that people have claimed she used, but uh, the film actually goes by, excuse me, what she herself said she used by way of um, songs to give direction. She didn't say she sang Wade in the Water or uh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot on her rescue missions, only the songs that I've mentioned, Bound for the Promised Land and the other uh, where she actually said, these are songs that I used. Tubman uh, reminds me of the biblical character Rahab, who also hid others and deceived a leader for greater purpose. And the question is, so did, would, uh, did Tubman feel justified in her subterfuge and her God-given mission? Well, because she knew, like other enslaved people, that slavery was a sin. She knew that God intended her and others to be free, that God was guiding her to free others. And you can't really argue with that. Well, Harriet Tubman, the movie, was a very strong, determined person who lived with the disability, was still able to accomplish a great deal. Abolitionists who knew her wrote about her great intelligence and her dry sense of humor. The film doesn't touch on the last 50 years of her life, but she was an incredible humanitarian, a suffragist, and more. A fascinating movie. And again, the reason I bring it up, well, there more than one reason, but one of the reasons I bring it up is the film is apparently faithful to her life of faith. I'm looking forward to seeing it, uh, taking my mom and uh, rejoicing over her courage and ultimately the freedom that my forebears uh, enjoyed as a consequence of her efforts and that of uh, those who are willing to fight a war over the subject. Well, tomorrow is Fun Friday. We will take a look at the lighter side of the news, but cover some of the day's headlines as well. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.